Thank you for being here tonight. We're so glad that you chose to come back. It is good to see Brother Billy with us tonight. I had the opportunity to speak with him a moment ago, and we are glad that he is feeling well enough to be here. We appreciate Jared stepping in and filling in his position today, but we're very grateful to Brother Billy and all the good that he does, as well as Brother D.O., and all the good that's going on here. Grateful for the great day that's upcoming, and we hope and pray that you will make plans to be a part of that. Uh, thank you to James and Kathleen and the work that they did putting together the brochure. It looks really good, and so we appreciate them greatly. We're going to be looking tonight at a couple of passages of Scripture. Actually, our lesson text taken from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And the reading a moment ago reminded us of righteous lot. And that will be our topic of discussion tonight. And as you and I look at the life of Lot, his name in many respects has become synonymous with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so I want to call your attention back to the Old Testament because really the background of what is recorded for us in 2 Peter chapter 2 is found beginning in Genesis chapter 13. And so we're going to look at that text in a moment or two. Again, I want to say thank you for being here. Appreciate so much the work that's going on with the young people, the singing that takes place at 5.30. They do a great job. We're so thankful for their excitement, and they are the future leaders of the congregation. And so we want to encourage them in every way possible. So let's talk about righteous Lot. Three times in 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot is described by Peter as being a righteous man. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of Lot. You remember back in Genesis chapter 13. In chapter 12, we read about the calling of Abraham. Abraham was the uncle of Lot. And so when we come to chapter 13, God had already made a promise to Abraham that through his seed line, all nations, all families of the earth would be blessed through his posterity. And as we've noted time and again, that promise was realized in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so in chapter 13, we have Abraham and Lot as they migrate. And as we note chapter 13, the Bible tells us that Abraham went up from Egypt with his wife and all that he had, and Lot also went with him to the south. Now look at verse 2, if you will. In verse 2, we find out something regarding the financial success of Abraham. The Bible says that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and gold. The Bible says also that Lot, he possessed flocks, herds, and tents. And so they were both wealthy men. So in chapter 13, we have the basis for the likely choice of Lot. And there's a reason why the first point is titled, The Likely Choice of Lot, because Lot's going to have the opportunity to survey the land after strife develops, and he's going to choose the well-watered plain of the Jordan. So let's first of all talk about the problem that existed at this point in time in history between Abraham and Lot. And really the problem was between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. The text says the land was not able to adequately support them. 
And so, with regard to the problem, first, when you look at what is recorded here in chapter 13, the wealth that these two men possessed was what ultimately created this problem. They both had lots of flocks and herds, and so a verbal war broke out between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. And note, if you would, the proposal set forth by the great patriarch Abraham. Here's what Abraham said. The text says, beginning in verse 8, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdmen and your herdmen. And here's the reason. Because we are brethren. In other words, we're kin. We are we're family. And because we're family, there is the call for peace. Now, you know, when we talk about peace today, particularly as it pertains to the body of Christ, throughout Scripture there is the call for peace among God's people. Peace within a congregation or within the body of Christ is not accidental, it's not incidental, but rather it's something that people work toward. You remember, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul identified himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He encouraged them to have a walk worthy of the calling with which they had been called. He said, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering. And then he said, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In order for God's people to maintain peace and harmony within the body of Christ, all of us have to work toward that end. That's what Paul is saying. And so when you go back to Genesis chapter 13, there was strife. There were problems that existed, and what Abraham is saying is, look, we need to quell these problems. So there is this call for peace, but then what about the cost of peace? I think in chapter 13, we learn something about the nature of Abraham. In my mind, Abraham was a gentleman. He was a man of God. Now, the Bible says that Lot was righteous, but Abraham was willing to give Lot the choice of the land. He said, separate from me. He said, if you, go to, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And you remember what the text says? The Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so ultimately, based upon what Lot saw, and I have no doubt he wanted that land because of the water. It would have been a place for his flocks and herds to graze. They would have had adequate amounts of food. And so based upon what he saw, he chose the well-watered plain of the Jordan. So, let's think now. First, we talk about the likely choice of Lot. The reason he chose Sodom, the reason he chose the well plain, rather the plains of Jordan, is because of what it had to offer. But now, think with me if you would in the second place. Let's talk about the living conditions of Lot. Remember, Lot made his choice based upon what he saw, didn't he? Sometimes things aren't necessarily what they seem to be. In other words, 
something might look one way, but when you get to know something more about the situation, you find out it's not as it appears. Sodom looked good. The well-watered plain of the Jordan was appealing. It was a place for his flocks, his herds, but ultimately it wasn't so great. So let's just talk for a minute or two about the reputation and conduct of Sodom. Now drop down and look if you would. In verse 11, the Bible says that Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Moses provides for us a commentary on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses said, And the men of Sodom were exceedingly sinful and wicked. So you go back and you look at the record. And the inhabitants of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what were they? Well, they were sinful. Their behavior was shameful. And in many respects, it was shameless. Over in chapter 19, you remember when the two angels appeared to Abraham. And in the context there, Abraham feeds them. And they encourage him to get his family out of the cities of the plain. But the men of the city of Sodom, the text says they surrounded the house of Lot and his family. And they wanted, they wanted the two angels, the visitors of Abraham, to come out. For what purpose? that they might know them carnally, or as we would say, in a sexual way. The people in Sodom, they were deviant. When we talk about the sin of Sodom, and the fact that these people demonstrated not just shameful behavior, but they were shameless. I mean, can you imagine? Here's Lot. He's in the city. He's well known. He's sitting at the gate when the angels appear well-known in the city, and these guys, that is, the inhabitants of Sodom, they want his visitors, his guests, to come out so that they might have sexual relations with them. It says something about their decadence, their depravity, their ungodly behavior. I was thinking today about the country in which we live. And over the last 60 years in this country, there have been what I would call cataclysmic changes. Things have changed in the landscape of America. There has been a moral erosion, and it has been chipping away at the foundation of this country for the last 60 years. I trace it back to the 60s because, if you remember, if you go back and read history, that was the day and time when young people began to defy authoritative figures. There was an anti-establishment rebellion among many in colleges. And then add to that the drug culture and the hippie culture. All of these things began working together to undermine the foundation of our nation. And so bit by bit, piece by piece, we as a nation of people began to change. And so you look at our nation today and you think about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
the sin of Sodom, the shame of Sodom, and then the shamelessness of Sodom. I mean, we live in a day and time when people are not ashamed of living in sin, of defying the Almighty Creator, of flaunting, as we might say, vile conduct in the face of others. There's a statement made by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah is writing to the people of his day. And he said, they declare their sin like Sodom. And then listen to this. He said, they do not hide it. You know, there are people today, they're very brazen, they're brash. They really don't care what you think about how they live, about how they conduct their lives. They don't care whether or not you're concerned about the influence that they're exerting over your children, your grandchildren, your family members. Again, going back to 1960, changes began to take place in this country. There was really an evolution over the past 50 to 60 years. If the changes today had occurred overnight, what would have happened? People would have risen up and said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. We're not going in this direction. That's not going to happen here. But what happened was it occurred over a period of time, didn't it? And so over time, you really don't recognize the changes. But they're there. So I think about, first and foremost, the reputation and conduct of Sodom. But then what about the reprehensible conduct of Sodom? Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, you remember Peter talked about how the Lord destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He turned them into ashes, making them an example to all who would live ungodly. And then he said he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. And then he said, for that righteous man tormented his righteous soul. Now listen to this. Seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So you think about the people of Sodom. And here's Lot. And Peter said he's a righteous man. And he is living among people who are unrighteous. So the things that they're saying verbally, it bothers him. The things that he sees visibly, again, bothers him. Are there things that you see from day to day in this country that bother you? Are there things that you hear about, again, in this country that bother you? That alarm you about the future of our nation? I mentioned a moment ago how our nation in many respects, has become shameful in her behavior and shameless. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, Jeremiah was talking to the children of Israel. And they had forgotten their maker, according to chapter 2, verse 32. Over in chapter 6, Jeremiah asked the question, were they ashamed when they committed these abominations? And the answer was, no. They were not at all ashamed. And then he said this, neither could they blush. Is it possible that in our culture today, things that maybe at one point in time in the history of our nation would have caused people, righteous people, 
to have blushed or to have been ashamed. Today, don't give it a second thought. Is that a possibility? Sure it is. So, righteous Lot, he is in the midst of what we might call a moral cesspool of evil. The problem was homosexuality. That was really the problem that existed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't think for a minute that homosexuality was not a problem from that time forward. Because over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you remember, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, talked about the fact that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word Corinth, the city Corinth, was really a synonym for immorality, for ungodly behavior. And Paul said, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and then he said, homosexuals and sodomites. So it was a problem in the first century. Homosexuality is a very specific word, but it falls under the generic term of fornication. Fornication would consist of sexual illicit sexual relations between a heterosexual couple and a homosexual couple. It would also include bestiality. But the point to press is this had become commonplace in the plain. And sadly, it's become commonplace in our country, hasn't it? I'm in the process right now of writing a paper. And the paper has to do with the Lord and civil government. It's amazing to me that our civil government and our Supreme Court have committed what I call egregious misconduct. First, in their allowance, their toleration, their legislation for abortion, and then secondly, same-sex marriage. So you think again, over the past 50 years, both have been mainstreamed in modern-day America. Who would have ever thought that? And yet, that's the case. So, note if you would, Another thought here. We talk about, well, we talk about the living conditions of Lot. And I have no doubt that what Lot saw, what he heard, bothered him greatly. Because as I said a minute ago, Peter said that he was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked, that his soul was tormented. And the idea is that there was continual aggravation on his part because of what he saw and what he heard. Now there's a third thing I want you to see. It has to do with the lasting consequences of Lot. And as we think about this particular point, I want to first of all talk about the place where Lot pitched his tent. Lot surrounded himself with wicked people and wicked practices. He had no one to blame but himself. If we're not careful, sometimes we, like Lot, make decisions not on the basis of faith, but on the basis of sight. In other words, we base our decisions on what we see, what we feel. 
What we ought to do is make our decisions on the basis of fact or faith. Paul said we walk by faith and not by sight. You go back and you look at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen to Peter as he said that God destroyed those cities, making them an example to all who will live ungodly. Do you think that that says something to us today? You think God's trying to say something to people of every generation? That when you erode, morally speaking, when you begin to step by step, bit by bit, piece by piece, move away from Scripture, that problems are going to arise? That ultimately there'll be a payday someday? So here's Lot. He's made the decision to go to Sodom. And now he is surrounded by wicked people. You think about the people you associate with every day. Do they build you up in the faith or do they bring you down? I get it. Look, we live in the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. That's what Jesus said in John 15. The world can have an influence on us, right? Sure it can. If we're not careful, we like the people of Sodom, or rather, we like Lot, can be influenced if we're not careful. And so, the people you associate with, they can either help you get to heaven or they can hinder you in your goal of one day gaining heaven. Paul said, be not deceived. Evil companionship corrupts good morals. There have been a lot of good people that have been led astray because they associated with the wrong crowd, the wrong kind of people. Paul said, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So you got... Wicked people, wicked practices. Think about the church today. The church as the body of Christ. Peter said that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're supposed to be distinctive. Our lives are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind based on Romans 12 too. Is it possible that the people... And their practices have rubbed off on us. There is no place in the life of a child of God for alcohol, any kind of drug usage. And by that I simply mean we're not out trying to smoke dope and get high. That's not who we are. We're not taking other types of chemical drugs. We're not using tobacco. We're not smoking. We're not dipping. We're not chewing. But rather, we're trying to live a life that is distinctive, set apart from the world. We don't, use foul, we don't use filthy language. Our minds aren't in the gutter constantly. And yet, if we allow ourselves, if we immerse ourselves in the world, what happens? Day by day, the world begins to rub off on us. And so you've got Christians today. You've got members of the body of Christ today who live a life unbecoming of being a child of God. That is a provoking thought. Do you demonstrate day in and day out Christ living in you? Individuals in the body of Christ who are drinking and smoking and gambling and engaging in 
worldly practices. You know, there are people in the church, they dress like the world, they act like the world, they talk like the world. Guess what? They're in the world. Just call it as it is. And yet John said, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, the lust thereof. But he that does the will of the Father abides forever. And so, we've got to understand who we are and whose we are. That means if we're a single person, we're not out engaging in premarital sexual relations. Why? Because God said we're not to do that. The marriage bed is undefiled. That's what the Hebrew writer said. But, he said, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You see, there's something different about a child of God. There's supposed to be something different about a child of God. And in the realm of religion. Is it not the case that some of our brethren have allowed the world, the practices of the denominational world, to rub off on them? I mean, when you start looking at some congregations that are using women in a role that takes on an authoritative position, in other words, you've got a woman who's serving as an elder, a deacon, Here's a woman who stands before a mixed assembly and preaches and teaches, leads prayer. There's no authority for that. And yet there are congregations all over our brotherhood that are doing that. Why is that? Because they, like the children of Israel, want to be like the nations around them. And Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. There is absolutely no authority for women exercising that kind of authoritative role in worship to God. Not at all. Now, I know that that's not fashionable. And in some communities, that is now what's going on. But it's not biblical. You see, there's a difference in what the New Testament teaches and what the world teaches. There's a difference in what the world practices and what the Word says we are to practice. Then what about congregations that are using the instrument? I noticed just the other day a man that had been a faithful gospel preacher in churches of Christ for many years. And he was standing on a platform and behind him were any number of musical instruments. Where's your authority for that? What are we thinking? I know of a congregation, one of the reasons they adopted the instrument was because they thought in their minds that would attract people. I guess that means the end justifies the means, right? Not what the Bible teaches. And so what's happened in the church as a whole? We have allowed the world to influence, to influence our behavior. And we're allowing the world to mold and to remake the church of Christ. But the church that I read about in the Bible resists those kind of overtures. The world no doubt tries to conform us into its mold. But we're not in the world, and we're not to be like the world. There are a lot of things that are practiced in the world. There are a lot of things that are practiced in the realm of denominationalism that are not sanctioned by the Scriptures. So the question is, do we want to do what's right, 
do we want to submit to the authority of God? I mentioned a moment ago, back in the 60s, this anti-establishment, anti-authority movement. And there were, a lot of, there were a lot of people in the 60s that did not like authoritative figures in any shape, form, or fashion. Has that not made its way into mainstream society and thought? Yes, it has. There were people back in the 60s that said, Jesus, yes, the church, no. It's not biblical. You can't separate Christ from the church. Why? Because He's the head, the church is a body. They go hand in hand, don't they? So, again, we look at Genesis chapter 13, and we remind ourselves, ultimately, of the lasting consequences of Lot. Now, let me just close by saying this. First, we talk about the people, or rather the place where Lot pitched his tent, but then secondly, the people with whom he pitched his tent. When Lot made the choice to go to Sodom, he jeopardized, number one, his faith, number two, his family, and number three, his future. He made a choice based on sight. I think the lesson for us is we need to be very careful about the decisions that we make in life. I mean, you think about Lot. Now, Peter said he was a righteous man, and he was. It would have been very easy for Lot to have gotten caught up in the activities of Sodom and ultimately lost his faith. What about his family? Did he not jeopardize his family? Matter of fact, the text says that when Lot encouraged his daughters and sons-in-law to leave the plains. His sons-in-law, well, the Bible says, in their mind, it seemed as if he were joking. They didn't take him seriously. So Lot lost two sons-in-law. Then what happened to his wife? The Bible says that she looked behind and turned to a pillar of salt. So he lost three very important family members. And then what about his future? Hebrews chapter 11 says concerning the patriarchs of the past that they look for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It would be tragic to throw our faith away, to throw our family away, and most of all to throw our future away. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, the Bible says these, that is, those godly people in days gone by, they died in faith. It would have been easy for Lot to lose his way in the cities of Sodom and as a result of that, throw away his future. My prayer tonight is that we'll live by faith, we'll walk by faith, We'll go back and look at the Old Testament and we will appreciate the great lessons that emerge out of the Old Testament. Lot was a righteous man and Lot paid a terrible price for the decision that he made. So tonight, it might be that you're here, you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never made the decision to come to Christ that decision may not necessarily impact you today, but there will come a time, there will come a day
when your decision not to obey the gospel will have everlasting consequences. Do you remember what Jesus said? Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. So if we obey the gospel, the promise is we enjoy salvation. We live in hope of life eternal. But the flip side is if we choose not to live a life of obedience, if we choose not to walk in the footsteps of Christ, then ultimately the wages of sin is death. And God doesn't want that for any single person. God's desire is for you to be saved. He wants you to be saved. You want to know something about the love of God? Look at the cross. You want to know something about the love of Jesus? Again, look at the cross. So, if you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, I encourage you to do that. If you're here tonight and your life is not what it ought to be as a child of God, maybe the world has influenced you. Maybe you, like Lot, have pitched your tent towards Sodom and you're out in the world. Look, God will take you back. God will welcome you back. In Luke 15, remember what the Bible says about one sinner who repents? There's joy in heaven. The angels of God will rejoice at your homecoming. Won't you come as we stand and sing?